Lord, as we approach this chapter this morning, um, I'm already swept up. I've been looking at it all week. The love that you have for your people, the gift that we have in you as our high priest, the joy that you've promised, the hope that you've promised, the security of the mission that you've given us. It's overwhelming what we see here. Thank you for putting it in here that we can get a glimpse of the interaction, the prayer, the intercession of our high priest before the Father. Would you be with us this morning? Would your spirit open our hearts and our minds to receive the depth of this? I have no delusions of grandeur of covering this like it should be covered. But we want to get a taste this morning. I hope that in doing so, our hearts would be warmed and our love would be stoked for you and for each other. That the beauty of Christ would be so enticing that other things are seen as lesser and not worth our time as we pursue you in your glory. In your name we pray this morning. Amen. Amen. John 17. We end this week our little series of snippets in the Gospels with the, uh, with the second of my uh, two favorite passages in all of the Bible. Uh, last week we saw that the Word became flesh. And... This week we see the Word that became flesh is sitting before a Passover meal with His disciples one last time. And for four chapters leading up to this chapter, John has talked about the dialogue that had gone on with the disciples at that Last Supper. John begins that evening with this verse in chapter 13, 1. Now before the, the feast of the Passover... When Jesus knew that His hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. Well, how did He love them? He washed their feet. He purged the false convert. He then instructs them on loving one another and seeking Him as their hope, their source for everything. He tells them of His swiftly approaching departure. He warns them against despairing because of their coming failures. He promises joy, His Spirit, and the benefit that He has overcome the world that hates them. And the whole dialogue, all four chapters, ends with this verse. Christ saying to them, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. That's John 16, 33. How? How has He overcome the world? They've witnessed His character and His compassion. They've seen His drive to immediately get to places and meet people as if on a tight schedule. He talked often of His action and those of others being so that the Scriptures might be fulfilled. It was odd certainly, 
but overcome the world? How? And so he turns from having communion with his disciples to having communion with his Father on their behalf. And let's go to John 17 read it. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have re received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, all yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. 
O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Good grief, where do you begin? What does he first state in this prayer? Where does he first go? Says he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, What? Father, what? The hour has come. Have we heard, if you're familiar with the Gospel of John, we heard about the hour before? What was the first miracle Jesus did in the Gospel of John? Do you know? Water into wine into Canaan. Uh, who asked him to do that? Mary. And what did he say to her? Woman. Woman, what? My hour. My hour has not come. The Word became flesh. The eternal Son, recognizing He's in time, recognizing that in time He is, how do you say, bound by? He's, he's constrained by restraint. In order to be obedient to His Father, there's a schedule. There's an hour. He's eternal, and yet He has to do something in space and time. And it's the hour. That hour has come. The eternal Son became flesh in John 1. Now He recognizes that He is a man subject to time. And what a time this is to be subject to. Um, what does he request of this hour? What does, he, what does he say? The hour has come, what? Glorify me. Glorify me. Why? That I might glorify you. What's the vehicle through which he will glorify the Father? And through which he will be glorified? What is he talking about? What? His death and resurrection, right? We'll put them together. He's looking at the cross. He's looking at the cross. Glorify me. How is God going to glorify Christ? He's going to overcome death. Seat him at his right hand. Him at his right hand. Far above all Principality. principalities, powers. Above every name that is named. Not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Isn't that what Paul's going to say in Ephesians? How is he going to glorify the Father? How will he glorify the Father? By being obedient. By being obedient to death. Humbling himself. Being obedient to death, even death on the cross, Paul would say, also in Philippians. So he's glorifying the Father through his obedience unto death. And the Father is going to glorify him by setting the God-man on a throne in heaven at his right hand. That's the glory he's talking about there. His obedience. 
Why do you think he makes the point here that he has been given authority over all flesh? Why is that important to make, that point? As he's going to the cross. He could. He has authority over all flesh. In fact, he'd say to, to uh, at his trial, if I pleaded with my father, don't you think he'd send me 12 legions of angels? It makes him willing. He's a willing sacrifice. So here we have the high priest sanctifying the willing sacrifice, which is himself. And this is the record of what's going on there. He's interceding for himself. He's interceding for his people. And he's doing it in such a way as to display clearly what he has done. John 1 talks about who he is, the eternal son. John 17, the testimony of Jesus, what he has done. Right? And those are the two themes you see throughout Acts. That's what they preach. Who he is and what he's done. Repent and believe the gospel. And so he's talking about what he's done. And what he's done is obedience. He's glorified the Father through obedience. Just at the cross? No. He's lived a life of obedience. Um, the smart guys call it active obedience. Right? This humbling of self. You see that in the wilderness. I'm not going to eat this bread. No, you know, man doesn't live by bread alone. He quotes the word back to Satan the tempter. Um, his responses to the Pharisees, his response to um, all kinds of issues going on in, in his, throughout his life. He's been obedient to the Father and testifies to that. His acceptance of the cross is an exercise of his authority over all flesh. And him was life, John says in his prologue. How does Jesus say that he exercises that authority. How does he exercise his authority over that life? What does it say? To give eternal life. To give eternal life to whom? All who are given him. To all who are given to him. By whom? The Father. The Father. Well, think about that. The picture is this. The Father... Um, well, let's start. Christ reflects the Father, right? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father, Philip. He says that earlier in the dialogues here. Um, he uh, he um, perfectly He's the image of the invisible God, Paul would say. He perfectly reflects the Father. The Father, in loving the Son, that mutual love relationship they have within the Trinity, in loving the Son, gives Him a gift. What do you give <laughs> to the son who has everything? You give him a gift that does for him what he does for the father. You give him a people called out, redeemed, who reflect the son as the son reflects the father. Right? But in order to do it, he's got to buy them out of a fallen humanity. Um, and then you have the great question, why not, uh, why not just say, Jesus, I need you for a weekend? You go down, 
you die, you're back, you're back up by Monday, you know? Why, why live the entire life? Because in the purchasing of this gift, he's buying the obedience that, they're, that they don't have throughout their lives. He, the, the old Puritans would say, he lived the life I should have lived and died the death I should have died. It's both sides. There's active and passive obedience. All right. His people are the total number of those whom the Father has given him. It is to them that he gives life. And he defines what he is giving in verse 3. How does he define it? How does he define this gift, eternal life? That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Huh, it just occurred to me, I didn't notice this. That, you, that they know you, the only true God. Um, that sounds a lot like uh, Hero Israel, the Lord is one. And he couples that with, and the one who you sent, Jesus Christ. Still one. And the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. That's interesting. I should have explored that more. Okay, but we won't today. I want you to pick up on this. Throughout this chapter, notice how many times the idea, the word, know, is used. Uh, you'll see it in other, time, in other ways. Manifested, I've manifested, that they may believe, that they may know is really the idea going on. There's about four different Greek words he's using in, the, in this prayer. But they all have the idea of know. That they may know that you have sent me. That they may know that they are mine. Those are the ideas there. Does that remind you of anything? Yes. What? First Samuel. First Samuel, okay. I mean, what we talked about, about uh, people not knowing the Lord, specifically um, Eli's sons. Right? Those worthless men? Yes. Yes. It reminds you of... Not knowing the Lord uh, in 1 Samuel, the, 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 the worthless, worthless sons of, of Eli. Even further back, those of you who are with us in Exodus, do you remember this constant theme that we saw? I'm going, or if we, if we did the, um, the, the East Texas translation of the Bible, I'm going to strike the Nile and make it blood so that what? They may, know they may know that I am the Lord. That idea of making God known is throughout this chapter. That's the prayer. That's the, whole, that's the whole reason He came. We saw this in John 1. He came to reveal the Father, to exegete the Father. This is the way that the, the language works in John 1. And you see Him confirming that here. That they may know. They know. The disciples know. Those who come later will know that you've sent me, that you're the Lord, um, that, that I am with them. In John's prologue, Jesus has revealed, made known the Father. Here he states that that work is the ultimate gift to his people. I counted, and I didn't do the Greek counting, I just counted through the English translation. Watch the verb know throughout the prayer. I counted 13 times that that's referenced. 13 
because there are 13 apostles. No, I'm not going to do that. Because uh, thir- there are thir- 13 times. Thank you. Um, 13 times he says, make known, they have known, I have manifested, or that the world does not know. I mean, those are the, those are the, that's the language that he uses, 13 times. And the knowing here is not just an intellectual understanding. He also says, I know you. That's not, intellectual, that's not merely intellectual. That's personal relationship he's talking about. Um, it involves personal relationship. The Son knows the Father, the Father knows the Son, and men and women through their knowledge of God are brought into that loving relationship between Father and Son. And they love, they're loved by God, they love Him, and they love each other in response. And this whole idea forms the basis of what he says later in verses 20 through 23. Look at this in verses 4 and 5. He says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Has he? <laughs> Has he accomplished the work that he gave him to do? Already not yet. Already not yet. Very good. It's a certainty. It's a certainty. He sees the cross as a certainty. I love them. I love you. I'm doing this. In fact, it's already done. He's so confident in the in the in the accomplishment of his mission that that one act of obedience that remains is seen as it's already done, it's already accomplished. He's totally committed to finishing this work that he speaks of as if, uh, as if it's already done. Uh, notice, too, that he rehearses the prize that awaits, that he already knows um, in verse 5. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. That I had with you before the world existed. What's that a statement to? His divinity. Now, throughout the dialogue, if you read 13 through 16, the disciples interrupt him a lot. They, you know, they don't quite get it yet. Um, Philip says, Jesus, show us the Father. In my head, this is commentary by Kevin. This is not textually verifiable. But I just have this view of Jesus going, Really? (laughs) If you've seen me... You've seen the Father. How long have you been with... What are you doing? But he says, again in his prayer, that I had with you before the world existed. Again, his divinity is, um, is, uh, is, is in play here. And he makes, um, he makes a point of making that known in his prayer. Look at verses 6 through 8. He is the revealer of the Father. And it, the word here in English is uh, manifested. I have manifested. And that word means to make gloriously great. <laughs> to make gloriously great. And the idea, some of the smart folks say, and you may even see a, a, a cross-reference to this in your Bibles, is to Psalm 22, um, verses 22 and 23. And I just want to read that real quickly. And this is often considered to be a messianic psalm. 
because um, it's quoted by Jesus from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, later in the psalm it says in verse 22, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise Him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify Him and stand in awe, in awe of Him, all you offspring of Israel. And look at verse 27. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. Just Jews? No. I'm going to manifest you. I have manifested you. I will make your name gloriously great. He speaks as the revealer of the Father. When we talk about We've talked about before the significance of a name in Scripture. What have we seen the name of God associated with? What is the name of God? What is it by your name or, or that, that kind of idea? What is that associated with generally? Strength. What's in a name? Yes. Strength, which is what of God? Character. Character of God. It's characteristic of God. His name is synonymous with who He is. His character. In fact, you see a lot of ways that God's character is revealed by the different names of God that we've seen. And Jesus is saying here, I have manifested your name to the people whom you have given me out of the world. How has he done that? How has he made God's name gloriously great? How has he manifested that character of God to the people that he's been given? Through the way he's lived his life, his ministry. Through the way he's lived. I, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father because I live just like Him, right? What I've done, I've done like He would do it. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I've manifested your name to the people whom you've given me out of the world. Um, name is equated to character. Jesus manifested the Father's character to His people. The world as a whole had failed to recognize Jesus as the revealer of the Father, but a select number of men and women had been given to Him out of the world. What does Jesus say marks these people as gifts of the Father to the Son? What are, what are the characteristics of the people that He's praying about? They've kept your word. Had they? Had they? What's another one? What's another characteristic of these people? I counted four for those of you who do the outline thing. They know that everything that you have given me is from you. Okay. What else? Everything that you've given me is from you? Number three would be... They receive the words that I gave them, so they're, they're not rejecting the words, they're receiving them. Where else can we go? You have the words of life, Peter would say. They receive those words. They believed. They believed that you sent me. They've come to know in truth that I came from you and believe that you sent me. That all sounds great. And to some extent, we can see some evidence of that. Again, Peter's statement. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and, and those kinds of things that we see. Kept your word? In the dialogues, he had just warned them that strike the shepherd and the sheep will flee. 
In the dialogues, he had just warned them, warned Peter, um, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. <coughs> but all this time, they've been listening and storing it up in their hearts and, and obeying it, albeit imperfectly, in their lives. For all their failures, Jesus viewed not only his own obedience as already accomplished, but the, but the disciples as well. And if we peek at the end of the prayer, he views your obedience as already done also. Even with all your failures. How can he do that? How can he do that? Giving the life that I lived just this last week, how can he do that? He's God, and he bought it. And he bought it. How did he buy it? Didn't he just say it? I've accomplished what you gave me to do. I've been obedient to you. Why? He didn't have to. He did it for us. To purchase our obedience. To purchase us keeping his word. To purchase us believing that he's been sent from God. And later on we'll see, to purchase the, the love that we have for one another. As imperfectly as we do that. It's been bought. He sees it as accomplished, not because of who we are, because of who He is and what He's done. Verses 9 through 18. There are two words in here I want you to key in on. Because we only have limited time, and this is John 17. Two words. You remember a while back, lo, those many moons ago when we were in Genesis 1 and 2, there were four things that God gave to mankind to do. Two were kingly and two were priestly. Do you remember? Subdue, increase. increase. Those are the kingly ones. Guard, guard, protect, guard, and keep. Those are the priestly ones. What words are used here? What words does he use here? Guard and keep. Who does he ask to keep? And what is he asking him to keep? <laughs> who's, who's, who's he needing to keep something, and what is he asking him to keep? Who? Who's doing it? Jesus. Jesus says it to, prays it to, the Father, keep them in your name. Why? Why would he do that? He's coming to the Father. He says He's been doing it, right? I have guarded them. I have kept them, except the one that the Son of Destruction, so that the Scriptures might be fulfilled, which really is, is kind of a net neutral on the you know, win-loss record for Jesus. He was supposed to be apostate, so that's not really a loss. Um, but He says, I have guarded and kept them. Why would he need to hand them over to the Father to keep them? He's going away. But he's God. Do you really you ever go away if you're omnipresent? He's giving himself up. Ah. Uh, he's looking at, in his humanity, the cross, isn't he? And I've kept them, and I've guarded them, and 
what's going on? I hate even saying this. I'm wondering if he's looking at the stress and the, and the turmoil he's about to go through. Can I keep them? Here, you take them. I'm about to go through this. You take them. You keep them. There's a plea here that Jesus gives them back to the Father, gives us back to the Father, because He's going away and, he can't, and He's not going to be physically watching over, although we know He does send His Spirit. We see that in Acts 2, by the way. Um, he's giving them the Spirit, but there's this, this concern for His people. You take them. And what does he say? He says, I am glorified in them. I am glorified in them. Really? Is he? He speaks as if it's already done. In ourselves, we are disastrously weak. But in the grace of the Father and the illumination of His Spirit, they would fulfill the mission they were now being given. Again, it's the confidence not in them, but in His Father that He speaks as if it's already done. He says, I am glorified in them. Does that cause you to walk a little more confidently? to know that He's already assuming He's being glorified in you? Of course, not confident in ourselves. But look what He's done. In His mind, in His prayer, you're already obedient. Paul would say, you're already seated with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's what he's looking at going to the cross. It's already done. He gives an accounting to the Father. We saw that in the manager parable, right? You give an accounting. He gives an accounting to the Father of what he's been entrusted with. He's lost none except Judas. And second, he's on his way to the Father via the cross. There's the language of guard and keep. Um... And he's guarding and keeping those who are hated by the world. Why are they hated by the world? Why does he say? Look at verse 14 and again in verse 16. Why are they hated by the world? Just as. So he identifies again with his people. They're not of the world just as I am not of the world. There's that identity of they're like me, I'm in them, he'd say later. Such a clear identity with his people and concern for them that they be guarded and kept by the strongest ally possible. He prays that they not be taken out of the world, but instead they're going to be sent into hostile territory as his messengers. Though he states clearly that his people share in his nature, he still prays for them what? What does he pray? Um, he says, 
They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. They're holy. Yet, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. They're sharing in my nature, but they still need to be set apart. There's still a, a, a sanctification that's going on with Peter, with the apostles, with me, with you. Even though we share in the nature, he's praying for that process of, of sanctification, that setting apart to continue. Already, not yet. And, and how, how is that happening? By what means are they being sanctified? Liver shivers? How is that happening? In the, truth, the, word. In the Word. In the truth. They're more and more to be set apart for service like priests with increase in the knowledge and practice of the truth through His Word. It means, it is a means that He has purchased and He lets us know that in the very next verse. Verse 18. Why does He consecrate Himself? That they also may be sanctified in the truth. <clears throat> he sets Himself apart that you may also be sanctified. Does it press upon you the great cost that He has paid To buy for you and me the ability, the means by which to pursue holiness. Unless we think he's just talking about the 11 remaining disciples there, what does he say in verse 20? He's bought that pursuit of holiness for, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. First of all, we've talked a lot in here about the hope in the law, right? That Leviticus talks about what's going on in the land and they're not in the land. So there's a hope of actually getting in the land to fulfill the house blight, you know, laws or whatever. Hope and house blight. Because you don't have houses yet, you've got tents. And so when you get there, you'll have houses and that's, we're going to be in the land. Look, look what he says. The security of the mission of the apostles. I pray for those who might believe, possibly believe, could maybe, if we're lucky on a good rainy day, that maybe everybody's trapped inside and they just get bludgeoned into believing. No, those who will believe. It's going to happen. There will be those that you've given me who are converted by the testimony of these misfits that I'm having this dinner with. It's going to happen. What do you think a statement like that does for these guys in the room the days, weeks, and years ahead? Gives them a little confidence, maybe? A little hope? That as they're running from Jewish authorities, it's going to happen. It's like a small mustard seed. It's going to grow into a tree. And look at this. Uh, what is he talking about their word? Where did they get it? They got it from Him, right? So they believed their word because they received it from Jesus, who received it from the Father. 
And there are two aspects here. The, wor the word given to those who will believe by the apostles and the call to be one as the Father and Son are one that the world may believe. Jesus had previously said, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. He says, um, that they may also be in us, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe you have sent me. Verse 21. Verse 22. The glory that you have given me, I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them. And here's the kicker. Even as you loved me. What in the world's going on here? Is that possible? Is that, gosh, is that not sacrilegious to say? The Father loves the people that He's given to the Son like He's loved the Father, uh, loved the Son? Is that right to say? How can He say that? Well, it's in red, and I'm glad He said it. So we know we can trust it, right? When is that unity critical, by the way? When is the unity critical for the apostles, the disciples, for us? As the trajectory of time goes, Christ will return, and then we'll be made like Him for we see Him as He is. There won't be the barrier of sin there, and there will be unity there. But what is He talking about? For us to be one... So that what? The world may know. If they know afterwards, oops, it's critical now, right? It's critical while we're still in the world that they see the unity and the, and the love for one another that he's praying for. That the world may believe you have sent me, that all people will know. That love for one another, the oneness that the church should have, that reflects the oneness of the Father and Son, is every bit a miraculous event as the ten plagues of Egypt. It has to be. That they may know. The glory that God gained for himself through the judgments on Egypt pales in comparison to the glory that he gains through the unity of the church and notice in verse 22 that it's a shared glory. We glory in that. We glory in the glory of Christ. He says, I give them my glory. Why? So that He would be glorified. So that the Father would be glorified. It's a reflection of who He is. Um, all right. Well, nuts. It's late. This is, um, this is one of the times where you say more could be said and you actually do have more notes. But it's late. Uh, I'll end, I'll, we'll, go, we'll go through this little bit here. Do you remember that John began his gospel um, with uh, in verses, verse one, uh, chapter 1, verse 14, within the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, 
glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And we talked about the whole Moses issue in the mountain and show me your glory. He says, you can't see my face. And Jesus is the embodiment of that steadfast love and faithfulness that we saw in the Old Testament. And that Jesus is the, the, the Greek there has the same connotation as those two things. In verse 24, he says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. Um, here in 24, Jesus prays that you and I will see and participate in that same glory. That we participate in reflecting the steadfast love and faithfulness of God that rests in Him. Not just show me your glory, but show it in me as I reflect it out. It's even more than Moses hoped for. That's kind of a huge thing. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. And here, there is laid out an increasing display of his glory, um, where the transfiguration was just a taste. If his mission was to make the Father known, by worldly standards, had he succeeded, make the Father known in the world. What happened to most of the people who had heard him speak? They rejected him. They rejected his display of the Father. They rejected that he was even sent by the Father. The vast majority of people still don't know the Father. The vast majority of those who even heard him refused to accept him. All those that had believed, now all that had believed was a small company of men and women, a very unimpressive group. And yet to them the coming mission was entrusted and he commends them to the Father for this purpose. Um, all right. One more act of obedience by Jesus remained to make the Father known, and it would take him away from them physically. But notice the promise that he ends on. To his disciples and to us, even in his conclusion of this prayer, I am with you, even to the end of the age, is a good promise. Right? That's a good promise. How much more I am in you. Not only am I with you, I'm enabling you. I'm in you to fulfill what you've been called to do, to transform you into what you should be. He accomplishes that final promise by pouring out His Spirit on them in Acts, which we will begin, Lord willing, and the crick don't rise, next week. And I know there's more to that, but we'll just... Um, it's 10.10. Uh, those of you who have to go play, you feel free to exit. Uh, any, any comments, statements, fruit to be thrown? Again, this is a huge passage. It's a huge um, display of what Christ is doing even now in the Holy of Holies before God the Father interceding. He ever lives to intercede for us. And this is what it looks like. 
in, in hearing this, and I mean, this is a big passage, but I, it reminds me of um, just the definition of love in 1 Corinthians 13 mm-hmm. and what that actually looks like lived out. Mm-hmm. Because the, the, the father's love and the son's love for each other, it's not, even though they have a right to have their own glory, it's about giving a gift to mm-hmm. each other. And um, and then us being able to be a participant in that circle of love, so to speak, it's just kind of overwhelming. Sure. Yeah, it's a the the idea of the church being a love gift from the Father to the Son has always resonated. Um, that's just a huge deal to be caught up in that divine gift, Christmas gift. You know, is kind of a big deal. Yeah. This, I know most of us in here are all sovereign grace, God is in control of people, but this passage, especially the first time I read it, really brought out the sovereignty of God because this shows how purposeful he, he is and was. Mm-hmm. Um, this is not something that just haphazardly happened. It's not a reactionary process. No. He, he knows his relationship with the Father. He knew his mission. Mm-hmm. He knew his mission in advance, and he came to do everything that he was supposed to do. And that represents to me a big God mm-hmm. that is not shaken, isn't behind the ball, that, you know, he's, he is in control and he is leading us. Yeah. And we are kept in him. So, you know, sometimes the world throws waves at us and it certainly feels like we're drowning. Mm-hmm. But we read passages like this and it writes us immediately. Because yeah. we know that we are persecuted, that life is hard, but Jesus' life was harder, mm-hmm. and he persevered, and he perseveres on our behalf. It's encouraging. You know, it's, it's uh, reported that John Knox, the great Scottish reformer, when he was on his deathbed, um, he lived a life of just uh, constant uh, political turmoil in Scotland. And they sought their freedom from... Catholic rule and all kinds of stuff. He's betrayed by the Scottish lords to bring in Mary Stuart, who was a Catholic queen, just so that they could maintain their own estates and all of that kind of stuff. And so he, he, um, he kind of was delusioned by the political process at the end of his life. And on his deathbed, you know, the, all the promises to make Scotland great again just failed. Um, and so he's on his deathbed, and he, had, he asked his wife, to, to read to him this passage. And, and the reason he did, uh, he, he called it, Where I Cast My First Anchor. The depth here of Jesus not counting on the political process, the, the mechanics of man to get the job done, but putting his hope where it, it had to be, um, he, he, he said this way, what, what it meant for the troubled church of God, the spouse of Jesus Christ, despised of the world, but precious in his sight. That's where, he, that's where his thoughts were on his deathbed. Again, reflecting the priestly role of Christ for the church, the love for the church, the love for his people. Um, and you see that again and again throughout the church, the, the, the leaders that, that, that uh, live that. It's a pretty, pretty amazing deal.
All right, any, any, um, no, I'll pray. Cutting you off, because it's your fault, right? All right. Father, again, thank you for putting this chapter in our Bibles. What great, overwhelming grace you've given to us in Christ. I pray, Father, that the heart that Christ had as our high priest, we would have in our priestly duties toward one another. That we would reflect Him by praying for one another. That we would see each other as obedience accomplished because of what Jesus has done. And then spur each other on to good works and to flee sin. Father, I pray that a passage like this again would remind us to be who we are in Christ. We're already there. We're already glorifying Him. And yet, we look sometimes at our lives and wonder, are we even in Him? God, I pray for the confidence that we have in You to be greater than the despair that we have uh, in, some, in our actions that your grace and forgiveness would so overwhelm us that would bring us to repentance and a true pursuit of who Jesus is and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Would you cause us to love one another as you love the Son, as you love us? Would you cause us to be comforted by the fact that you love us as you love the Son? That's overwhelming. It doesn't sound respectful to say that, but it's in red, so we trust it. Be with us today as we go on to the next service, we pray. Would you again set fire in our hearts to be zealous for Jesus and zealous for one another? It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.